The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au One quick thing, would you all please smile? Now would you all frown? I can't tell the difference. Good. Well, you I can. (laughs) Uh, Take your Bibles again if you have them with you. I hope you do. And uh, look at Isaiah 42, please. Isaiah chapter 42. We've been enjoying uh, some studies in these nine verses. And um, just to my own heart, it's been such a blessing to consider uh, what God inspired Isaiah to write for so long ago. And what, it, what I just marvel at as you read the Scriptures is how relevant it was for them. Just as relevant as it is for us today. And in hope and encouragement to our hearts. How do we know that the Lord God will keep His Word? That He will keep the promises that He has made? If you were to go through the Bible and try and add up all the promises that God has made from Genesis 1 right all the way to the maps of your Bible, you would discover there's so many of them. What reassurance, what hope do we have from Scripture that God will keep the promises that He made? Well, it is the glory of God to keep His promises, and that's what we're going to consider this morning. But what, first of all, I just want to go back and kind of review quickly what it is that the Lord God has been saying to us through Isaiah 42, this first of the servant songs. And from verse 1, we can see he is saying, I want you to behold, to look and see my servant, the one through whom I am going to accomplish great and awe-inspiring things. He says, I want you, I want to hold him forth before you in the full knowledge of him as my holy, unique and glorious son. He says there in verse number one, whom I uphold. It means the idea there is whom I set forth. And one one idea of that is as a wrath removing sacrifice to reconcile my people to himself. In Romans chapter 3, God talks about how He has set Him forth as a propitiation. He will come and He will meet all the law's demands on behalf of His people. He, Jesus Christ, who cannot sin, will be made sin for us. He will be found guilty of sin and He'll be punished for it. He will turn all of God's wrath against us away and replace it with joyful acceptance. God says in verse 1 again, I greatly delight in Him as my obedient Son and servant. He says, I have chosen the man, Jesus of Nazareth, to be united to the divine nature of my Son at the moment of conception in the womb. He is one person with two natures. In verse 2, God goes on and says, My servant's son will not cry aloud in the streets, but he will deal quietly, gently, and in a dignified manner. In verse 3, he says, My servant's son will not break a bruised reed. He's talking about any of those 
who are downtrodden and despised and considered worthless by others, but He will strengthen and rebuild them whole again. My servant's son will not extinguish a smoldering wick. He will breathe gently on it to coax it into life again. My servant's son, in verse 3, will bring forth justice to the nations. And the idea there is the justice of God, the truth of God, the kingdom of God brought forth to the nations. He says, I... God the Lord, the creator and sustainer of all created things. I, being righteous and doing righteously and working to declare sinners righteous, I myself have called my servant's son in righteousness to accomplish this work that I've given him to do. He tells of what that work's going to be. I will give my servant's son as the substance of the new covenant so that all the covenant blessings will be found only in Him. In verse 6, He says, I will give My servant Son as a light of salvation to all the nations of the earth. My servant Son will open the eyes of those blinded my sin to see My glory in His face. My servant Son will open the prison doors of those held captive by sin and under the domain of darkness. He will bring them into the kingdom of my dear Son. And those are all, not all, but those are the ones recorded here, the promises of the Lord about His servant to the Lord's people in exile. And to us, in Noble Park, in Australia, in 2021, hearing all about our Savior, what a motivation for us as believers who know and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ to serve just as He served His God and His Father. Knowing, knowing with the reassurance of Scripture and God's Holy Spirit testifying to our hearts that we are firmly held on to just as God held on to Him. Knowing, brothers and sisters, think of this, that He delights in us with a similar delight that He delights in the Son knowing that we have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world and that we're called in righteousness to serve in quietness and gentleness and humility, to take the light of the gospel of God's salvation through His suffering servant to all the nations of the world. What a reminder. And my goal, one of my goals in in studying this is for us to see the Lord Jesus Christ a, a new view a fresh aspect of who He is, that it might change us from the inside out to be more like Christ. But you know, I can imagine some of those exiles in Babylon reading this, and they're weakened in their faith, having seen all that has happened to the nation of Judah, the nations of Judah and Israel. The death of thousands, hundreds of thousands. By the way, if you ever want to get a a good idea of what happened and just the impact and effect of what happened when uh, Judah and and Israel conquered, read Lamentations. It's a tremendous book to explain just the after side, the back side of the judgment of God against the people of God. 
Those exiles had seen the conquering that came through the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They had seen the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. They had gone on that long, slow march into exile away from family and friends and temple and priesthood, king and kingdom. And you could hear them saying, how do we know? How do we know that the Lord our God will do these things? He did not save his own people. In that time, you know, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that God in magnificent grace, anticipating their doubts and fears, and perhaps anticipating some of our own doubts and fears, in order to soothe them, he declares to us the reason and reassurance of his promises. He gives us, number one, his qualification. He gives us, number two, his motivation. And number three, his confirmation that he will keep his promises to them and to us. So first of all, notice the qualifications of the Lord to keep his promise. There is inherent abilities. And the first point we're going to look at here in verses 8 and 9 kind of asks this question for us. Who is making... And who will keep all these promises? We notice in verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. Uh, Shakespeare, years ago, wrote in Romeo and Juliet, What's in a name? What's in a name? How much does a name convey to each of us? I can mention names in certain circles and all of a sudden ideas and concepts will come forward. I walk into a gymnasium and I shout out, hey, Arnold's here. And in the gym, all these weightlifters will all of a sudden turn and run to the front door thinking that Arnold Schwarzenegger, because in that name, had they carry a certain concept. I walk into a bank or into a financial conference, and I say, hey, you know, Bill is here, and he's brought Elon with him. And all those bankers and financial people will get, get all excited. Oh, wait, Bill Gates and Elon Musk are here. There's so much that's packed into a name. It conveys a certain amount to us, and the Scriptures are no different, and the Lord our God is no different at all. There's so much in His name. If you want to learn something about God... On a very simple level, just get a dictionary, a Bible dictionary out, and start looking up all the names of God. There are so many of them, and they have such a rich display of the attributes and character of God. What's in a name? Yahweh, which is very simply a transliteration of the Hebrew name Yevah. It's the name Yahweh was given to Moses in the context of God keeping his covenant promises to Abraham to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt, to bring them back to his promised land. God's character is revealed by his name, the Lord. Now, one of the great tragedies of having television and mass media and all of that is overuse of certain terms or titles can diminish our idea of what they mean. And sometimes you hear, with my apologies to the, the American people, you hear in a southeastern, southern drawl, the Lord. And all of a sudden it becomes less than what it's supposed to be. But you know, the Lord is a tremendous name for God. 
God's character is revealed by His name, the Lord. The Bible says in Genesis 21 and verse 33 that He is the everlasting, the eternal Lord. He has no beginning and He has no end. In Isaiah 45 and verse 5, He is the unique Lord. There is absolutely no one like the Lord our God. This is a side note. The reason why I had Peter go back and read those verses from 41 all the way through is what's happening there is he's comparing who the idols are to God. And one of the things he's going to do at the very end in 42 and verse 9, he's going to make a tremendous statement about comparison. They can tell you nothing. I have told you the things that came before and I'm telling you the things that are coming afterwards. That's the comparison. Our God is the unique Lord. There is no one like him. In Isaiah 43 and verse 15, He is the Holy Lord. And the idea of holiness isn't just purity. It means absolutely separate, completely other. There is no one like Him. No one can approach Him because He is so different. In verse, uh, sorry, Isaiah 2 and verse 10 and 6 and verse 1, He is the majestic Lord, enthroned exalted, lofty, and rising is the idea given there. In Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, He is a compassionate and gracious Lord. The very fact that God is giving these messages, these words through Isaiah's pen, even though judgment's about to fall, if not already falling, He's already looking ahead He's already telling them, hey, don't lose hope because there is one coming. There is a servant coming who will make a new covenant and he will bring the light of the truth of the gospel to the nations. He's compassionate and gracious. In Psalm 145 and verse 13, he is a faithful and true Lord. In Malachi 3 and verse 6, he is an unchangeable Lord. I, the Lord, change not. And yet the wonderful truth and intention with that is that God is the God who relates. He relates to His people. When we repent and seek forgiveness, He forgives. When we repent of sin and turn away from it and seek forgiveness, He relents from doing us harm and bringing discipline that He ought to and could have brought. I think you're remembering this as you're reading these pages. You read Isaiah. Isaiah was profoundly changed by his vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was changed from the inside out when he saw the Lord in supreme authority over all the hosts. He saw the Lord in unlimited power to accomplish all that he desired. He saw the Lord as a king over all creation. He saw the Lord in the temple, right there in the midst of his people, present with his people. Isaiah was changed when he experienced the grace of God to cleanse him and save him. And brother and sister in Christ, I wonder if what some of us, if not all of us need, more than anything else, is to stop and see the Lord and be changed. To see the Lord, to behold the glory of the Lord your God. To focus on Him for a time and allow what you see to change you. To be like Isaiah on your knees, curled up in a ball on the temple floor, crying out, woe is me, for I am ruined. And to experience the grace of God in that moment. 
Well, being Lord means there are certain attributes to his lordship. And I've got to stop here and give credit where credit is certainly due. I've been enjoying a systematic theology textbook by a man named Dr. John Frame, who was a Presbyterian fellow from Westminster Theological Seminary. I believe it's where he works. And he wrote a great book on the lordship of God and, the, and all the different attributes of God's lordship. And I want to share three of them with you and then add one on to the end of it. He is, first of all, the Lord with authority over all creation to make promises. He is authority as Lord because He is all-knowing. He has the authority because He knows everything there is. In 1 John 3 and verse 20, the Bible says, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. In Mark chapter 2 and verse 8, what happens there? Jesus in that room with these people. And he just said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you to this paralytic lying on the floor. And all the Pharisees are mumbling. And in their minds, they're going like mad. Who can forgive the sin but God alone? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he knew everything. He was the Lord. He has authority as the Lord being absolutely truthful. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. One of the reasons why we can take all the promises of Scripture and hold on to them and be absolutely sure that God will keep His word is because God is the God who never lies. He has authority because His word governs creation. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the Bible says that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word, by His word of power. What that means is, He controls, He governs all of the universe by the word of His power, by His spoken word. Being the Lord, He has the authority to command us in what to believe and what to do. God is not an impassive, wise suggester. He is the all-powerful, all-authoritative Lord, our God. And He commands us to believe. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. The, the penalty for failing to believe is a lost eternity in hell. To put it bluntly. Secondly, he is the Lord in control over all creation. He can make promises to us because he is in control of all things. The Lord is the one who controls all the forces of nature and history for his purposes. He exercises his power in control. He is such great power and control. He can call into existence that which did not exist and something that the moment of its existence was obedience to God's control and God's power. He parted the Red Sea for Israel to go through. He works his, his control and His power for His purposes. So He parts the Red Sea, has control over the physical forces of water and gravity in order to deliver His people out. He parted the Jordan River. Why? To bring His people into the land. Jesus stood up and said, be still. 
and the wind and the waves immediately obeyed him because he was the Lord in authority. He was displaying his deity to his disciples. Jesus commanded demons to depart in order to display his authority, and they obeyed. He was in control. Jesus commanded sicknesses to be cured, even at a distance. Roman centurion comes and says, please heal my servant, but don't, don't worry about coming to my hand. House, just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus looks at him and he looks at the Israelites and is like, I haven't found such great faith in Israel. Be it done according to your word. God was healed. He had control and power to heal at a distance. God can make those promises and all the promises of Scripture to you and I as the Lord because He controls everything according to His will and by His power. He commands us to believe the promises knowing He will keep them. He is the Lord present with us. Number three, to bless and judge. He is present, not physically until Christ came but he's always able to act on and act in creation. Why do you pray? Do you pray in the, in the fond, dreamy hope that maybe something will happen? Or do you pray in the conviction that God, who is in authority and has control, can do as he likes and act in and on creation? Why do we pray and ask for healing for people who are sick? Because God can act on creation and in creation. Why do we pray and ask God to save people that we know and love and want to see them come to Christ? Because we know that God has control. He has authority. He is present always, as Wes mentioned in his communion meditation, always everywhere present to act and intervene on our behalf. He does so both to bless and to judge. He is the Lord. He's able to evaluate and judge authoritatively. You might fool everybody else in the room about how godly and how great you are, but you will not fool the Lord your God. He sees to the very depths of your soul and your heart and your being. Why is God calling us to genuinely repent and believe? To genuinely authentically live the life of faith before Him because He can see right through to the core. I can stand up here and preach for years and with a few carnival tricks fool most people. But I will not for one split second fool the Lord my God. He can see the very depths of my being. He as the covenant God is covenantally present with His people. In Exodus 3 and verse 12, He promised Moses, I will go with you, Moses. In Exodus 33 and verse 14, He promised Moses that His presence would go with the people of God in their center. And Christ, the Lord Jesus, is the perfect display of this attribute of God's Lordship. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is never, sorry, He is with us never to leave us nor forsake us. Matthew 28 and verse 20. The Lord in authority commands us to believe and to act. The Lord in control will surely bring His promises to pass. The Lord pleasant, present, always with us. His covenant people, which includes us, will keep these promises to bless and to judge. What a great God we serve. 
He is the Lord. Number four, unique in all existence to make and keep these promises. Someone could suggest, and many thousands have, that the Lord God is only one of many gods. You could say there are other gods who have authority. There are other gods who have control. There are other gods who have are present with their people. Perhaps God, Israel's God is just a God, one of many gods. But God in His Word answers this point directly and exactly. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, the Bible says, Shema Yisrael, Yevah Eloheinu Echad. Meaning, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, one. One. Unique. He is the only one. Now, the word one there in, the, in Hebrew means simply the smallest number. doesn't mean unique so much, but the idea is carried forth by that. He is the only one. And of course, we all recognize that God is Trinity of three in one, one God in three persons. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God in three persons. He is the unique God, the solitary God, the only God. His qualification to command us to believe these promises is that He is the Lord. The Scriptures say, all the Scriptures say in relation to that, display the, the character, the nature, the person of the Lord. He is the Lord in authority over all creation. He has the right to command our unwavering belief. He is the Lord in control over all creation. He will bring those promises to pass. He will also impart the faith to believe and the will to obey. Isn't it a wonderful truth? It's not necessary for us to suck up all the faith to do it and maybe wind ourselves up like a clock as wound as tightly as possible to go and obey because the Bible tells us in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, God is at work in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. In other words, He's working in us to put that desire in us. You have the slightest desire to read your Bible. Congratulations, you get no credit for that because God put it there. You have a desire to pray? Congratulations, you get no credit for that because God put it there. And God still requires you to exercise obedience and he will begin to provoke and provoke and provoke. That desire will get stronger until God will perhaps say, okay, have it your own way and back off. But the problem is discipline begins to fall. He is in us to control. He controls everything. R.C. Sproul said it's so right. He said there's not one random molecule in all of existence. Everything lies under the control of the Lord our God. He is the Lord always present with His people. He is the Lord, the only unique God of all the ages. You and I can read the text of Scripture. We can read these promises here and every other promise that the Lord our God makes to us. We can read them as absolutely true on the basis of His own name and character. His name defines and portrays who He is. That's His qualification. Who is He to make such promises? Who is He to promise that His servant will come as a covenant for the people and a light to the nations? Who is it? It's the Lord our God. But then you notice the next part is the motivation. Why? 
Why would the Lord God make these promises to His people who had so long and so stubbornly refused to trust and obey? He made them because He is the faithful God, and He also made them because God is most passionate for His own glory. Thank the Lord for John Piper and Jonathan Edwards who wrote so much about this. God is most passionate for His own glory. Look what He says in verse 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is My name. My glory I give to no other. God created all things for His own glory. I think it was uh, C.S. Lewis who wrote a book and he was talking about this whole idea and he said, Sometimes you get the idea reading the Psalms and reading the Old Testament that God is like that little old auntie that you have that's always giving out her cookies and saying, don't you love my cookies? See how good I bake them. And she's like a little old auntie always trying to heap up praises for herself by her cooking and her cleaning and her, her sewing and stuff. You say, well, that kind of sounds like, except for one great thing. Little old auntie, God bless her, her cookies aren't that great and her sewing is okay, but it's not the best. But God, the Lord our God, He is the highest being in all of existence. He is the most valuable being in all of existence. When He says, I give my glory to no other, it's not because nobody else, sorry, it is exactly because nobody else deserves glory in comparison to the Lord our God. He is the most glorious. He is the most high. The most lifted up. My glory I give to no other. God is jealous for His glory because He is entitled to it all. God is jealous also for the affections of His people. Why? Because our glorifying of God is to know and enjoy the highest experience of being a human Created in God's image. Listen to that again. God is jealous for the affections of His people. Why? Because our glorifying of Him is to know and enjoy the highest experience of being a human created in God's image. There is no higher level no higher accomplishment, no higher achievement, no higher experience that any human can ever possibly have than when they glorify God with hearts in love with God. Why is it we'll spend all of eternity? You think eternity can be boring? When you're little, right? You think, oh man, eternity. I mean, you know, an hour-long math class seems like eternity. I can't imagine eternity being hundreds of thousands of years and never ending. And all we're going to do is stand around and glorify God. How boring. I promise you on the authority of Scripture, you will never have, you will be in rapturous joy. A joy so high you can't even comprehend it at this point as you spend a countless ages and they'll seem like moments to you. Because the highest experience of any human created in God's image is to glorify Him. All of man's love and devotion and worship, adoration, all our obedience belongs first and foremost to God. It is rightfully His. He is the Lord's. He is the Lord. 
He says, I am the Lord. He is the being of highest value in all existence. He says, I will not relinquish my glory due to my name to any carved image. Why? Because in the worship of anything but God, man declines to the lowest experience of being human in God's image. Go take your Bibles. Go back to Romans chapter 1 and read 21 to 25. Do it later today. The decline of man there, you can see it. They go from worshipping images and man and birds and animals and end up at creeping things. When man worships anything other than God, he's on a steady downhill decline. And it's the lowest part of all man's experience as a human is to worship something other than God. If you read through Isaiah, a number of times... He will compare the making and the worship of an idol to himself. That's why Peter read that passage earlier. In one scene, he describes a man goes out into the woods, has an ancient Near Eastern chainsaw, cuts off a tree, drops a tree on the ground, bucks all the limbs off, knocks it right in half, takes one half, chops it into firewood and builds a fire, and takes the other half and whittles and carves and works away for hours to create an idol. He stands it up, falls over. So he gets it up again and nails it to something solid so it won't fall over again. Then he worships it. And God is just mocking these idol-worshipping people, saying, that's your God? A lump of wood? And we go, oh, silly people. Hmm. How much do we worship things other than God, brothers and sisters? How much do our heart's affection go to something other than God? I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. How quickly do my affections turn away from God and go to something else? And God says, I will not give my glory to another. I will not allow my glory to be shown. I won't allow you to take what belongs to me and give it to one of my creations whom you are exalting to supposedly my level. The nations were in darkness. Those nations in verse 6, worshipping lumps of silent, powerless, faithless, ignorant firewood that they carved into idols. So God promised to send Christ as the covenant for the people and a light of salvation to the nations. Because God wanted to turn the nation's affections back towards Himself. To turn them away from worshipping silent powerless idols and turn them into worshipping and glorifying God as the living, all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging God of love and grace and mercy and peace. God will accomplish all these things by His own authority and will to the glory of His name. God will accomplish all those promises by His power and control to the glory of of His name. He will do it by His servant's Son. Again, to the glory of Jesus' name. Nobody will stand before God to claim credit or glory for the accomplishment of these things. Christ came to save us. He died to save us. He rose to justify us. He's now seated by the, beside the Father, interceding for us. He is doing it all on our behalf because He deserves the glory for all that He's doing. God saved us for the glory of His own name. 
one of the greatest tragedies that's been applied to the, the church in this era we live in is the slow, steady push of glory away from God and onto the Christian. Look what the Christian has done. And God stands here and says, No, 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 no. Look what I have done. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to nations. He won't cry aloud or lift up his voice. He won't make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he won't break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged, etc., etc. And you know what? We're not mentioned in there. Did you notice that? <laughs> He doesn't say, and West will do so-and-so, and then Putin on after that will do so-and-so, and then Peter, when he's finished, will do something else. No, it's all about the servant and all that he does so that he will get the glory. The end of it all. We are called to simply hear the promise of God, to believe the promise of God, and to be faithful to God. He will do all that is necessary to bring it out. And beloved, at the end of it all, Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11 describes what will happen for humanity. Believer in abundant, so I'll try it again. The believer in abundant, rapturous joy will declare Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the unbeliever being sent to hell for all eternity, he will go and he will also in great sadness, declare He is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, the obedient angelic hosts never cease to declare in each other's presence, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Why? To glorify God. And I'm convinced the disobedient demonic host was Satan as choir master will all declare in a furious rage that the Lord God is always God. Beloved, listen. You will glorify God with a confession that Jesus is Lord. You will either do it now willingly as an experience, an expression of the Holy Spirit's power, the outflow of a heart changed by God, or, or, you will glorify God's name in the utter desolation of knowing you have been rightly and justly consigned to hell for all of eternity. You will. Absolutely no doubt about it. The Scripture says it, and I absolutely believe it because God said it in His Word. You will glorify God who is just to condemn you. But nobody in hell will stand there and say, I was framed. Nobody will stand in hell and say, it's, it's, it's not my fault. Somebody else did the dirty and I'm here paying for it. No. Every person in hell will say, I sinned and I'm here. Rightly so. God's motivation to, to make these promises and keep them is the glory of His own name. God's qualification is the fact that He is the Lord and all that's packed up in His name Thirdly, I want you to notice as we close, the confirmation of the Lord keeping His promises. God is so gracious. 
He even provides us and them with evidence that we can all look and see and grasp that He'll keep His promises. The Lord, the unique God in authority and control present with us can make and prove that He will keep His promises. Notice verse 9. Look what He says. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. The former things. What's He talking about? In Genesis 15, verses 12 to 16, God making a covenant with Abraham, the Lord, the covenant God promised to bring Abram, sorry, bring Israel from Egypt. He kept his promise and brought them out with a mighty hand. In Exodus 33 and verse 14, the Lord, the covenant God, promised to go with them through the desert. At the end of 40 years, what's Moses say? Your shoes haven't worn out. Your cloak still works. Everything's going fine. God has sustained you and brought you all through the wilderness. He fed you with manna. He fed you with meat from the quails. He's provided water. He's given everything you need. He promised to go with them and He went with them. Deuteronomy 11 and verse 23, the Lord God promised them to go with them, to go before them, to drive their enemies out. He went ahead and He destroyed all their enemies before them. Every place they set the sole of their foot, they owned and occupied. Sadly, their disobedience, they held back. But God gave them all the land. In Judges 6 and verse 16, the Lord God promised to go with Gideon. Gideon and his not 10,000, uh, not, what was it, 1,000, not 1,000, 300. Against 300. Against a countless multitude. You know, the Bible says that it wasn't just the Midianites that couldn't be counted. They're camels. So somebody went out and counted all the camels, couldn't get to the end of them. There's so many of them. And God says, go in your, your strength. I will be with you. And Gideon goes out. And the Midianites are wiped out by God's hand. In Isaiah 39, verses 5 and 6, the Lord, the covenant God, promised that the Assyrians would come and conquer. He kept all those promises which the exiles knew only too well. What's the point of all this? God says the former things have come to pass, meaning everything I promised you back then, it's happened. And now... New things I now declare to you before they spring forth. I tell you of them. New things. What new things? Christ is going to come as the Lord's suffering servant. Christ is going to come as the substance of a covenant that He will make between Him and Him and God, including us. He says, as the Lord, I have kept all my words to you. That's His evidence. Now new things I declare to you before they spring forth, I tell you of them. For the exiles living in Babylon, God's word was absolutely sure. They looked at where they were. We're in Babylon. Why are we not in Jerusalem? Because God put us here. Why did he put us here? Well, he promised he would put us here. And did he? Yes, here we are. And they conclude that God keeps his promises. He is the Lord. He's the only one that can make those promises and absolutely, precisely, definitely keep them. I read somewhere years ago, some, I, I, was a, I was 16, I believe, and I was in a Sunday school class. That's a long time ago, in case you're wondering. Um, and I was in a Sunday school class, and, and my teacher was talking about the mathematical probabilities of one, keeping, one person keeping all the promises made about Christ. You know what it is? 
It's one chance, one, out of the number 10 with 40 zeros behind it. So they can't even, have a number for it. They say one out of, one chance out of 10 to the power of 40, four zeros. You get a pen out right out, 40 zeros. All the way around the room, draw a line across and put one above it. That's the chance. And yet, guess what? All those promises that God made about Christ have been and are being fulfilled. God keeps His Word. God keeps His Word. Lord, The Lord, the one and only unique covenant creating God, keeps His Word. He will send His servant Son to be the covenant. The Lord, the present always with His people, God, He will keep His Word. He will send His servant Son to be the light to the nations. And He did. The Lord is in control and power over all things. He will do as He said. The Lord is in authority over His people. He will do as He said. He has the right and the might to command our belief. At the end, our disbelief is simply a case of disobedience to God. He is the Lord, both zealous and jealous for His glory. So, brothers and sisters sitting here in Melbourne in 2021, masks on, restrictions up, spaces between us, what do we do with all this? How does this affect our life? What implication does that make for my life? God has kept His promises regarding the servant's son. He came, He lived, He suffered, He died, and He rose again. And the promise is that He's coming back. Praise God, He's coming back. But you know, brothers and sisters, alongside of that, He has promised us so much more. i got about six verses. I apologize, they're not on your note sheet. I printed those after I put these in here. So, if you want them, you can come get them from me. Uh, James chapter 1 and verse 12. Listen to these promises. This is what God has promised you, believer. Listen. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under the trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised. Brother and sister, we get through this trial. How are we going to get through? In the power of the Holy Spirit, with God walking beside us every single day. What's the end of it? God's promised. So it's a possibility? No, it's a certainty. He has promised a crown of life. Listen to James chapter 2 and verse 5. James 2 verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? Are we heirs of the kingdom? You hope so? No, you're certain of it, right? Good. <laughs> you were certain of it. Why? Because God promised. The same Lord that made the Old Testament promises and kept them all, He'll keep this one. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4, to four, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Stop for a few hours and just meditate on that. Every single thing that you require... For life and godliness, He's provided it in His Word and in His Spirit that fills us to teach us and instruct us about the Word. That's all we need. He's given them both to us. All the things, sorry, 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us what? Precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. He's granted us great promises. They're ours. Absolute certainty. You're struggling with your faith. You're wrestling with whether God is going to keep His promise or not. You feel like you're going to let go and slip back and it's all going to be over. God who began a good work in you, He's going to finish it. It's one of my, one of my favorite promises in the Old Testament. Not the Old Testament, it's the New Testament, I know that. It's in the whole Bible. Is that God is going to finish what He began in me. Because there are times I get up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I'm not growing. I don't see the change I want to see. I don't see the godliness I want to see in my life. And I go, why? What's going on? And I go back to the Scriptures. I pick them up and I say, Lord, You promised that You will finish the work that You began in me. Brother and sister in Christ, if you're struggling along in your faith and you're thinking, I'm not growing. Why am I not growing? Why I don't see change happening? You go back to the Scriptures. Look what he said at that verse earlier. It just occurred to me again. Um, where to go? Here it is. Second uh, Peter one three and four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. How do we gain the knowledge of Him? You're all holding one in your hands. Through the Word of God. He's promised us great and precious promises. Listen. 1 John 2.25, and this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. And by the way, that idea of eternal life isn't so much eternity in heaven. That idea of eternal life is that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. You and I have eternal life already because we know the Lord. And you know what, brothers and sisters, I can keep going. There's more and more. Philippians 1 verse 6 and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. It's in the Old Testament too. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. What's God's purpose for you? To be rich, right? No, not. To know Christ? Yes. To be conformed to the image of Christ? Yes. To be like Jesus? Yes. Praise God. To finish the work that He began? Yeah, that's His purpose in you. And He will do it. The Old Testament tells you and the New Testament tells you. So what do we do? How do we take all that we've, we've been through in, in 42 and verses 1 to 9 of Isaiah? We read the promises of God. As you read through your Bible, note the promises of God. And as you note those promises, consider God's qualifications to keep them. His character to keep them. Consider His motivation his own glory, and consider the evidence that He gives you over and over again on the page of Scripture that tell you He will keep those promises. We believe the God who made the promise. And brother and sister in Christ, let me add this. Believing is not as simple as saying, I ask Jesus into my heart. I believe. Those two words, I believe. It's not as simple as that. 
You mean there's works? No, there's not works. It's living in the absolute certainty of those truths. I'll give you an example. I'm absolutely convinced I can't fly. I don't mean in a plane. I mean literally fly, right? I'm so convinced of that I'm not going to go up on the roof and I'm not going to throw myself off because that would be a horrifying sight to anybody walking out the front door, right? I'm convinced of that truth. And so I live in the certain knowledge of that truth. I can't fly. When I was a carpenter in Canada, we built houses on slopes like this. And I was always the guy on the back side of the house on three stories up plus a foundation hanging on to trusses, putting them out for the roof. And I was so convinced I couldn't fly, I hung on to that wall for everything I had going. Because I was certain of the reality I believed with all my heart I can't fly. And so I lived in accordance with that belief. Those promises are there so that for a purpose. Those promises are there so that we will believe them, understand them, and live in light of them. They're not just there because it's great poetry and it's great story, it's great history, it's great text of Scripture. It's there for a purpose to change the way we live. And that's what belief is. Belief is agreeing wholeheartedly with God, throwing myself on God as the only way to survive, the only way to get through, and living in agreement with that belief. If you believe He's coming back tomorrow, how do you live? Like He's coming back today. If you believe that God judges sin. Don't go looking to engage in it. If you believe that God honors and rewards faithfulness, then be faithful. If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, submit to Him. If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and King, then submit to Him. If you believe that Jesus Christ answers prayer, pray. <laughs> right? Okay. He made those promises. His character is His qualification to keep the promises. His motive to keep them is the glory of His own name. And the evidence that He's kept them is all the ones He's kept in the past. And God who cannot lie, God who is absolutely true, will keep those promises yet to come. Would you stand please? And we're going to close in prayer. We'll be done. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give You thanks and we praise You, O God, for who You are. You are the Lord. And Father, we just, we just stand back. And Father, in a sense, we can almost hear the ring of the angels crying back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Father, I pray, I plead with You, O oh God, for every single person in this room and those watching on live stream. I plead with You, O oh God, that You would confront us powerfully with who You are. That we might recognize our own sin and turn to You. 
crying out, Woe is me, for I am undone. And to receive the grace of God for forgiveness. Father, I pray, I plead with You, O God, for every single one of us in this church. Father, I pray, I plead with You, O God, that You would renew and refresh our faith. Father, we pray that You would work in us as You promised that You would do. Working in us both to will and to do for Your good pleasure. Father, I pray that You would do that work in us this day. The we in full mind of who You are would respond in submission and faith and obedience. Father, we believe. We are convinced that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And so we will live like He's coming back today. Father, help us in these things. Father, we thank You again for a time of fellowship. We thank You, Lord, for remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning in communion. Father, now as we depart to our homes and and to the week that's ahead of us, Father, we pray that You would take, You give us the flavor of this message, this time together, to go with us throughout this week, that we might live lives that are pleasing to You. Father, we ask You for all these things in the precious and the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.